Welcome to the show. We will be joined in just a moment by Michael Clare. Michael Clare is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College. He's the defense correspondent for the magazine, for the, for the Nation magazine, and of course is a prolific author on matters of energy and world security. First, I would have for you a bit of a fish wrap. Today's newspaper is tomorrow's fish wrap. Kevin McCarthy <clears throat> will or will not be the speaker, <clears throat> excuse me, by the time our <clears throat> five o'clock rebroadcast is being played. Um, really don't have much to add to this except this bit of wisdom from one Richard Nixon, who long ago said that when it comes down to a stop so-and-so movement, I'm voting on so-and-so. Uh, the Republicans don't have an alternative at this point, and they're going to have to elect a speaker. So making no predictions, I nonetheless think that uh, this charade of, a, of uh, governance will come to an end sooner rather than later because the Republicans, uh, right-wing and off-the-charts as they may be, nonetheless are going to have to come up with a speaker the other matter, of course, that has riveted the country's attention for the last two days is Buffalo Bill's uh, Damar Hamlin, who is still, as we speak this morning, in critical condition in the hospital. Uh, there is really not much to add to this. I did hear Bob Costas do a commentary yesterday in which he said, football is an inherently dangerous sport, a violent sport, but this actually is not a particularly good example of the things that happen in football that cause people's injury and death. Uh, the kind of thing that happens, for example, when a baseball uh, and a fluke hits a person directly in the heart or, or in a lacrosse accident, something like that. So um, it's, a tr it's a tragedy, um, and it tra happened right in front of us in our very eyes, and people have seen it now. Um, and, well... I just don't have much to add to that. We'll see. Hopefully by later this evening there will have been some good news, but the news from the hospital so far is not uh, it's, it's, it's not to give up all hope, but it's also not positive. He remains in critical condition as we speak this morning. I'm really pleased to have back with us Michael Clare, Professor Clare. Uh, I want, wanted you to come back on, and I appreciate you doing it on short notice uh, because there were two articles on the front page of yesterday's New York Times about Ukraine, and those are our, uh, in the audience in, who are with us regularly know that uh, Professor Michael Clare has been with us throughout and before the Russian invasion of Ukraine and throughout the uh, war. And there were two articles in yesterday's New York Times front page that got my attention. One was the starvation, the world food insecurity that is being caused by the war in Ukraine, and the other was about the attack by Ukraine uh, on Russian that caused many, many deaths of Russian soldiers, uh, somewhere between 60 and hundreds and hundreds of deaths, as well as the destruction. Professor Clare, I'd like to start with the latter article, if I might. Uh, you are a defense expert. I'd like to know what you make of that attack, and apparently successful, and if we if we're measuring success in terms of destruction and death uh, by Ukraine on Russian forces. And in particular, the reaction reported that the right wing of Russian social media is outraged. How could this happen to our army? How inept are our generals? So the reaction in Russia seems to be, we have to fight a bigger war, a better war, a more vicious war, maybe use nukes. Uh, which is not the reaction one would have hoped for. I'd appreciate hearing your perspective on that aspect of that attack. Professor Clare? Sure. Uh, so, you know, there's the, the, the anti-war position in, in Russia has been totally silenced. So the only allowable commentary on the war comes from the right wing or the, the hard right pro-war faction in Moscow is the only voice that you're, you can hear. And that voice is extremely critical of the Russian military and how it's performing in Ukraine. As you suggested, they, on one hand, they, they want a tougher war. They want a, a harsher war against Ukraine. But they've also become very, very critical of how the war is being conducted by Putin's generals. And this incident is, go, is already leading to much a, a chorus of anger and criticism 
of the Russian leadership for how it is performing in Ukraine, allowing recruits, first of all, to gather in large numbers, <clears throat> hundreds of people, uh, hundreds of soldiers in one encampment where reportedly they were uh, texting and, and communicating with their families back home and so on, giving away their position. So in the view of the military bloggers in Russia, this was very poor leadership on the part of Russian generals. And it's also possible that they were storing ammunition at the same location so that when the Ukrainian missiles, uh, US supplied uh, Ukrainian missiles struck that location, it also detonated ammunition, Russian ammunition adding to the casualties. So from a Russian position, Yes, this is a bad behavior by Ukraine and the US, but also very bad behavior by the Russian military leadership. The question in my mind is how many people are pointing fingers at Vladimir Putin as being responsible for all this? It's his generals who are in charge. So if you attack his generals, aren't you also attacking Vladimir Putin? So far, we haven't seen any evidence of that but I'm wondering what's going on behind the scenes. That said, is there any indication to you that Putin is somehow losing his grip on Russia? Losing his grip, no. Is he losing his grip, you know, on, on the uh, ecosystem of support around him among the oligarchs and the, uh, the, the top media personalities and the other sycophants that, that support his regime, I think there is some damage being done. His aura of invincibility is certainly being damaged. Uh, the, the view that Putin can do no wrong, which is the way the media has presented him, that's being shattered a little bit here. So uh, I don't think he's in any immediate danger, uh, but, but he's starting to look a, a, a little bit uh, uh, eroded, a, a little bit tarnished, I think is the right word here. And, and so we'll have to see how that plays out in the weeks ahead. Is there pressure on him to expand the war now or to give up the war? or neither of the above? He's in a tough position right now because he's done pretty much everything he could do with the means at hand. Uh, he's called up extra troops and sent them into battle in Ukraine, and uh, they've not been trained at all. They haven't been given proper equipment. Uh, they have terrible leadership, and they've just been crushed. Uh, how can he turn to the mothers of, of these soldiers who died in Donetsk uh, two days ago and, and tell, assure them that, that he's doing everything to protect uh, their boys? Uh, so, you know, he's. He, what is he going to do? Is he going to call up another 300,000 soldiers? He's hinted that, but I think that would create even more resistance than the last call up did. So that's a problem he has. He's pretty much used up his stockpile of missiles uh, to fire at Ukraine in punishment. I mean, he'll get more of those drones from Iran. Uh, but that's not going to turn the tide of war. Uh, so that's a problem. He has nuclear weapons, yes, and he could use those, but that would finish off his, he would be tarnished forever as the worst person on the face of the earth. So I don't know that he, that's an option. I, I, I think he has no option but to keep on fighting and losing. Well, brings me to the question I keep asking you. I'm sorry for that, but does that mean that the war, or the end of the war, is in sight, or at least becomes imaginable or more realistic? Because from everything that I've read and seen, 
there doesn't seem to be a way out at this point. You know, it's the, it, it's where it was when we spoke last, Bill. Uh, I think Putin is not going to stop fighting unless he feels he can control a large chunk of the territory of Ukraine that he captured in the opening days of the war. And the Ukrainians are not going to stop fighting until he could, until they could push uh, the Russians out of most, if not all, of the territory they occupied since the beginning of the war. So neither side seems prepared to compromise on those two fundamental points. And as long as that's the case, the war will continue. Let's turn to another aspect of the war, which is what is happening to the production of grain in Ukraine and Ukraine has been the breadbasket for the world, and although it has had effects in the United States, some inflationary effects on food prices, it has it is having and will continue to have a devastating effect on people who face hunger, starvation, in fact, in other parts of the world. Can you give us your perspective on that, please? Oh, this is one of the terrible tragedies arising out of this war. Uh, you know, I wanted to say that that reading about this um, attack two days ago on Makivka in Donetsk, uh, where where hundreds or, or hundred or hundreds of Russian soldiers died, I, I I feel sorry for them and everybody else who's died in this war, and the number of deaths is just spreading out and increasing. So I, I, I feel terrible about this. This war has been a, a, an enormous disaster. And one of the effects is the one you're speaking about is increased starvation around the world. And it's being caused by multiple factors. One of them is that Russia is not exporting food products and fertilizer. Secondly, it's attacking the port cities from which Ukraine exports its grain so that it can't export food from its cities. It's attacking the farmlands in Ukraine so that Ukraine can produce food. And it's, and it's blockading Ukraine, making it impossible for the Ukrainians to export food through the Black Sea, which is the normal way uh, grain is exported. Now, uh, under an agreement with the UN and Turkey, uh, the Russians are allowing a trickle of grain out but not enough to, to address the widespread shortage of grain around the world. And this is happening at a time of drought in, in the Western Hemisphere, terrible drought in Africa. So food prices are rising. So there are multiple dimensions to the food crisis, and many of them touched off by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, a terrible tragedy. I'd like to ask you about something that I, it continues to perplex me, and it's, the question is raised by what you just mentioned, which is that there's been an agreement between essentially the United States, Russia, Ukraine, and other countries to allow some export of grain from Ukraine. At the same time that this war is going on, that agreement was somehow reached. Uh, at the same time, the United States is still uh, talking to Russia about uh, a swap of prisoners, and we succeeded uh, in having a swap of prisoners. So the United States, through all of this, is still talking to Russia. Russia is still, at least directly or indirectly, t talking to Ukraine. And the war goes on where it is estimated that 100,000 uh, soldiers on both sides have died. And the killing and just goes on and on, and the war crimes go on and on, and the uh, uh, civilians dying goes on and on. And yet there's negotiations and discussions happening all at the same time. How does that happen? Why does that happen? Well, you know, it's, it's not the United States that's in conversation. It's Turkey that, that was the principal... Uh, actor in the case of food exports and the UN Secretary General. And Turkey is playing a crucial role in these prisoner swaps and in the grain deal. Uh, Turkey is a member of NATO, we recall, but it is also friendly with Russia. 
uh, it imports a lot of energy from Russia and weapons from Russia. And uh, both sides want to remain, that is the West and Russia, want to remain friendly with Turkey, a very important geopolitical actor in all of this. Uh, so it's the, the uh, negotiating power that, that uh, Erdogan, President Erdogan of Turkey wields that has made this possible. But the US and Russia are barely talking to each other. They're not, the most dangerous aspect of this uh, bill is that they have suspended talks on nuclear weapons arms control uh, and so right now there are no talks between the U.S. and Russia on the uh, extension of the New START nuclear uh, nuclear arms reduction treaty, which which uh, expires in 2026. And without those talks and without that treaty, we're likely to go back into a nuclear arms race like we had in the Kennedy era. Uh, when when the world was exposed to ever-increasing threat of nuclear war. Well, we are going to leave our discussion there for today. Professor Michael Clare, thank you so very much for your time and your insights. We really appreciate your being with us on a regular basis. Your, what, you, what you bring to this conversation and our understanding, I think, is really, really important. I just want you to know how much we appreciate you. Well, thank you, Bill. We'll be right back. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 1015, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Part of what I love about being a therapist in community mental health is really getting to know people who are from really different backgrounds, including serving people who are the most vulnerable. Dan is a therapist at ServiceNet. There's a culture of thinking more deeply about the work we're doing. And for me, when I do that, that feels really good. If you're a licensed mental health clinician who wants to make your own hours while also being part of a progressive community mental health team, join us at ServiceNet. Go to the employment page at servicenet.org. Hi, this is Jessica from Fitness Together. I meet clients every day who tell me that as the number on their scale grew higher, their self-esteem dropped lower, and going to a traditional gym absolutely terrified them. Here at Fitness Together, we'll work with you one-on-one, -on -one, either virtually or in one of our private suites in Amherst or Northampton. We'll help you set and reach your fitness goals, and most importantly, smile every time you look in the mirror. Fitness Together in Amherst and Northampton. Your self-worth is worth Fitness Together. Are you an immigrant worried about your future? Do you want to change your life? At Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. CNA is like family you can trust that gives you hope and confidence that there is always support for various situations. They help dreams come true. Do you want to be a part of Center for New Americans? Visit our website at cnam.org. Call 413-587-0084. Center for New Americans, with offices in Amherst, Northampton, and Greenfield. The Literacy Project is the place to go if you are an adult looking to improve your reading, writing, and math skills, or if you want help preparing for the high school equivalency exam and preparing for college. To find out about our free classes in Franklin and Hampshire counties, check us out online at literacyproject.org or call us in Northampton at 413-584-6755. If you want to learn, the Literacy Project is the place for you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. 
In today's Daily Hampshire Gazette, Dateline, Missouri, is this headline, Transgender Inmate to be Executed. Well, the story actually is an AP story, and it's a bit dated because the execution has already taken place. Let me read a bit of this Associated Press story to you, a couple of sentences from Missouri, Dateline, St. Louis. Nearly 1,600 death row inmates have been put to death in the U.S. since 1977. Missouri Governor Mike Parson on Tuesday said he would not halt the execution of Amber McLaughlin, 49, who was set to die for for stalking a former girlfriend and stabbing her to death nearly 20 years ago. McLaughlin attorneys have not planned any legal appeals. This is the first execution, I believe, of a transgender woman in the United States since the death penalty was reinstituted. The Death Penalty Information Center shows 1,558 people executed since the death penalty was reinstated in the mid-1970s. All but 17 of them were men, and the center said there were no known previous cases in which an openly transgender inmate was executed. There was a clemency petition submitted by her attorneys, the Glaufen's attorneys. They cited mental health issues a foster parent rubbing feces in her face when she was a toddler, an adoptive father using a stun gun on her, according to the petition, severe depression, multiple suicide attempts, none of that enough to spare her life. With us today to discuss this is Michael Meltzer, Meltzner, who is a professor at Northeastern University of School of Law, has been, I think, for the last, oh, I think, almost 50 years. Uh, he was one of the attorneys on the case the death penalty case that went to the United States Supreme Court in which for a brief shining moment, number of years, the death penalty in the United States was unconstitutional, or so we thought. Professor, thank you for being with us today. Uh, Given this execution yesterday, I'm wondering what your reflections are on the death penalty and how it continues in the United States uh, through the time, well, from the time when you won that case at the United States Supreme Court, but its lasting effect, well, its effect has not lasted, at least nationwide. Your reflections today? Well, shortly shortly after uh, the death penalty was reinstituted, uh, there was an uptick in the number of executions. But in recent years, uh, the death penalty has really um almost disappeared in this country in any statistical sense. Um, There were only 18 executions last year. Um, And the arguments uh, for the death penalty uh, that have any persuasive quality have really uh, uh, disappeared. Death penalty continues to exist in this country because of uh, a few states, Missouri is one of those that seems to love it, and um, because of the ideological bent of the present uh, Supreme Court, which has no interest whatsoever in um, limiting the death penalty, uh, despite the fact that uh, the states, and many of the states, and certainly uh, juries, have um, and prosecutors, I might add, have uh, continued to uh, signal that the death penalty just isn't worth it. So, do you One see the interesting things about this particular case? Well, there are two that strike me. Um, one is that um, the woman or it was was on death row for twenty years. The notion back in the day. Um, death penalty advocates used to argue about deterrence, <laughs> the notion that um, you uh, execute someone 20 years after um, they've been put in prison um, makes that uh, hard to pass the, the laugh test. The other is that, there, that uh, she was sentenced to death by a process which um, one would have thought any, any court before the previous one would have declared unconstitutional because the law always was understood to be that juries were required to signal uh, a death sentence. In her case, as I understand it, the jury was um, 
unable to reach a decision, the judge jumped in, and under Missouri law, he could do it, and decided that she should die. Right. It's extraordinary to me that in the United States, where we say there always has to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt and a unanimous verdict by the jury, that this jury could not reach a unanimous verdict. In any other case, there would have been a mistrial declared, uh, and the sentence would have been a uh, life without parole sentence in Missouri. But instead, in this state, the judge can say, well, the jury couldn't decide, so I'll decide for him, and I think the person should die, so I'm going to decide that this person should die. It's extraordinary. How, how can that be in the United States? Well, it can be because there weren't four justices of the Supreme Court of the United States to say they wanted to hear the case. It wasn't this case. It was a previous one, I think, with the same uh, issue. And that, that's that's the problem. You know, um, you and I both um, uh, uh, lawyered uh, under the understanding that the basic test under the Eighth Amendment about the legality or constitutionality of capital punishment was whether um, it passed the test of evolving standards of decency. And the court always signaled that it was measuring that test by what was going on in the states, you know, what the legislatures were doing, what what the behavior of, um, of the states was. Well, over the years since uh, the death penalty was reinstituted, uh, if you count states that haven't executed in over a decade, a majority, a clear majority of the states have abandoned the death penalty. I think seven or eight have actually abolished it since 2000. Uh, but the present court is ideologically bound and not really interested. Uh, the only cases um, that seem to uh, interest the court uh, deal with the method of execution, and their, their decisions are um, equally uh, uh, they're equally unwilling to um, uh, protect uh, the uh, inmates under the Eighth Amendment. So is it fair to say in your judgment that this is essentially a court that is based, basing its decision on the outcome that it wants to reach, that they are in favor, the six of them are in favor of killing people, they are not opposed to the states executing people, um, and therefore what had been a violation of the Constitution when you litigated this case on behalf of the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, of course with your colleagues, um, that that hope for the Supreme Court saying, yes, it is unconstitutional, there shall not be any more executions in the United States, that's a dead letter, sorry for the bad pun, um, but as a practical matter, um, if a state wants to kill people, well, that's just going to be fine with this court? Well, that seems to be what the tale of the numbers is, um, despite the fact that um, across the board, from prosecutors and jurors and state legislatures, there's been a uh, gradual abandonment of capital punishment for a variety of, of uh, reasons. And it's consistent with uh, the way you formulate it. It is consistent with what the uh, court seems to have been doing across the board. I mean, it, this is a court that knows what it wants to do and is not going to be stopped by um, uh, inherited doctrine. We have been speaking with Michael Melsner. He is a longtime professor of law at Northeastern University School of Law. He was one of the legal defense lawyers who brought Furman versus Georgia. That was the case in which the Supreme Court decided that the Supreme, Supreme Court decided that the death penalty was unconstitutional. He's written a new book. His new novel is Mosaic, Who Paid for the Bullet? We'll have him back on to talk about that in a later show. Thank you so much for being with us today, Professor. We really appreciate your time and insight. A pleasure, and thanks for the opportunity. Get in on the conversation. Call 413-586-7140. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. Governor Charlie Baker has agreed to a new law aimed at making roads safer for vulnerable users, such as bicyclists, pedestrians, skateboarders, and anyone else who's not in a vehicle. The legislation calls for larger vehicles to be equipped with lateral protective devices, additional mirrors, and backup cameras. 
It also requires officials to report information about crashes involving vulnerable road users and allows municipalities to petition to modify speed limits on state highways within their borders. Grow Food Northampton is planning on adding a new barn with the help of federal funding in the amount of $413,000. The nonprofit focuses on sustainable farming and food justice. The barn will be located near the juncture of Spring and Meadow Streets in Florence. Grow Food's community farm consists of 10 small farms and a 320-plot garden. The funding for Grow Food is among 15 projects that Governor Jim McGovern earmarked to receive federal dollars within his congressional district. And with temperatures expected to hit the 50s today, anyone planning on ice skating or fishing should probably make other plans. Warnings of thin ice are coming from all over the Connecticut River Valley. East Hampton Fire Chief Chris Norris tells the Gazette that ice does not freeze at a uniform rate, so while it might be safe enough to walk on in some spots, others could be quite dangerous. The East Hampton Public Works Department has installed signs warning residents to stay off of Nashawanock Pond and purchased emergency buoys and rope to keep on the edges of the pond to throw to anyone that might fall through the ice. Mostly cloudy today, rain developing after 3 o'clock this afternoon, mild with a high of 50 to 54. Rain continues tonight. It'll end as some drizzle, possibly some freezing drizzle, in the hills of Hampshire and Franklin County with an overnight low of 34 to 40. Mostly cloudy, scattered showers tomorrow, and a high of 38 to 42. Could be a few flurries here on Friday. I'm 22 News Storm Team Meteorologist Brian Lapis, 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rashivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Estados Unidos anunció el miércoles nuevos requisitos de prueba de COVID-19 para todos los viajeros de China, uniéndose a otras naciones que imponen restricciones debido a un aumento de infecciones. El aumento de casos en China sigue al retroceso de los estrictos controles antivirus de la nación. Los nuevos requisitos de Estados Unidos, que comienzan el 5 de enero, se aplican a los viajeros independientemente de su nacionalidad y estado de vacunación. A algunos científicos les preocupa que el aumento de COVID-19 en China pueda desencadenar una nueva variante de coronavirus en el mundo que puede o no ser similar a las que circulan ahora. Eso es porque cada infección es otra oportunidad para que el virus mute. Según las nuevas reglas, los viajeros a Estados Unidos desde China, Hong Kong y Macao deberán realizar una prueba de COVID-19 no más de dos días antes del viaje y dar negativo antes de abordar su vuelo. La prueba se aplica a cualquier persona mayor de dos años, incluidos los ciudadanos estadounidenses. En otras informaciones, la ciudad de Holyoke anunció el miércoles que celebrará First Night Junior, la cual será una fiesta diurna de Nochevieja para niños, jóvenes y sus familias, y se llevará a cabo el sábado 31 de diciembre en Holyoke Heritage State Park de 10 de la mañana a 1 de la tarde. Este evento es organizado por el Holyoke Merry-Go-Round, el Museo de los Niños en Holyoke y el Departamento de Conservación y Recreación de Massachusetts, con el apoyo del Departamento de Parques y Recreación de Holyoke. First Night Junior incluirá paseos ilimitados en el carrusel, entrada al Museo de los Niños y entretenimiento en vivo. Las festividades concluirán con el descenso de la bola que simboliza la llegada del Año Nuevo a las 12 y 50 de la tarde. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Well, it's light music, the music we have for Larry Hott's introduction to but, his... Well, it's uh, not that light music, actually. It's from The Third Man, which is a pretty dark film. It's a film noir. But it feels light to those who don't know. Okay. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was trying to lighten the mood, having had uh, uh, Professor Michael Kerr talking to us about Ukraine and... Uh, Professor Michael Meltzner talking to us about the death penalty. You know Michael Meltzner. He's on the board of Mass Humanities with me, a great institution. And yeah. I thought you were going to say Professor Hot, but uh, <laughs> it's, it's <laughs> this is we this is we think our segment, Cool Films with Larry Hot, our Emmy Award-winning filmmaker, Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker. One of the films you want to review with us today to continue with our conversation that we've been having with Professor Michael Meltzner about the death penalty, the recent execution in the state of Missouri, uh, a film that is related. That's a good news death penalty case, if there's such a thing. Well, we're, uh, we're all ears. Larry it's, uh, it's This is a film um, about Huey Newton. Uh, do you remember the name Huey Newton? I do. Newton versus the people. Uh, this is a short film 
Uh, I decided today it would be fun to review some of the short films that are up for Oscars. Okay. Uh, and we should know for our listeners who haven't been following, Larry Hott is one of the members of the Academy of Motion Picture... Arts and Sciences, AMPIS for short. And, and he, vote, he votes on the Oscars. I do. And uh, one of the categories is the short documentaries. And they have to be less than 40 minutes, 39 59 seconds. <laughs> and believe me, having this happen to me once, if you are a second over, you are disqualified. <laughs> oh, no. Early on in my career, I, fo I found that out. Uh, so there's a series of short films that are now um, in the top 15, and one of them is American Justice on Trial, uh, People versus Huey Newton. And this is a short and powerful film about a death penalty case. Huey Newton was a Black Panther in Oakland in 1967, he was stopped with his girlfriend driving a Volkswagen Beetle, and the cops pulled him out of the car, and he had a book with him. It was a constitutional law book, and he held the book up to the cops, and he said, you can't arrest me for no reason. You have to have probable cause, and the cop just smacked him and started beating on him, and he grabbed the cop's gun to, pretend, to defend himself, and he ended up shooting the cop. And another shot, cop shot him back, and he got wounded. And eventually he was brought up to trial on a murder charge. And the reason that this became a cause celeb was not just because he was a Black Panther, and not because he was intellectual. And this is an interesting little side note. Huey Newton was a classical pianist. I did not know this. And that provides the soundtrack. Tchaikovsky is the soundtrack for this film. Once you know that at the beginning, it changes the whole mood of the film because Huey Newton was a very intellectual guy and a very talented guy and a very well-educated guy. So he doesn't fit the mold of the young black man stopped by the cops, right? And which is important in the trial. But the trial is the key thing here. And if you hear a clip from this film, you'll get a sense why this film made law. I mean, not the film, why this case made law in the United States. The shooting happened at 5 a.m., the first time an Oakland policeman has been killed in nearly 20 years. Newton had not gone out looking to shoot police. There was an altercation, but this time, a policeman was dead and a black man was alive. That hadn't happened. The suspect is Huey Newton, 25-year-old leader of the Black Panthers for self-defense. They were trying to kill us, and it was up to us to defend ourselves. He wanted to change everything as the revolutionary, as the leader of protest. If he was convicted, he would probably be executed. There's no question. He's, he's done for. We had to get Huey a lawyer. We had to get Huey a lawyer because he was going to be done for. Well, who is that lawyer? That name, when I heard it in this film, I said, I remember that, because I remember I was 17, 18 years old, 1968, during this trial. That lawyer is Charles Gary. Bill, does that ring a bell to you? Charles Gary, one of the most famous uh, criminal defense and civil rights lawyers in the 20th century. Yes, and he was, his, his second lawyer with him was Faye Stender, who, uh, she was famous at the time because there were very few women um, in the courtroom defending on death penalty cases. And one of the things that, like I mentioned that, that, that uh, Newton, Newton playing the piano stands out, they mentioned Charles Gary didn't have straight teeth. Why does that stand out? Because he didn't look like the suave Ivy League educated lawyer that he was. Um, he wanted to be the people's lawyer. And the case is important because they were able to seat a multiracial jury a jury of one's peers. And they argued for that and they got it. The film really makes its mark because the foreman, the black foreman of the jury is alive, remembers everything, is articulate and smart, and he tells the story. He's the backbone of the film. Do you want to tell the story or are we going to... Well... No, I'm not, let me just... I want to leave it at that because I want people to see the film and I think that they've already heard the story. But it's fascinating. You don't need a legal degree to find this fascinating. Although I've done voir dire in my past life as a lawyer, I know that, that this is actually it's one of the more fun aspects of, of, of practicing law. And I should interrupt to let our listeners know 
that one Larry Hott is indeed a recovering attorney. I, I have to, I'm therapy. One day we'll recover. <laughs> Bardier is, is, is basically how you see the jury and how you investigate the jury. Um, These are the questions right. posed to the jury to see if they right. can be fair and impartial. Right. So then you see the pictures of the jury in, in this. It's still mostly a white jury, but it is not only white. It's Hispanic and Asian and, and black. And this is why Huey Newton does not get the death penalty. And I don't want to go into the details of the film, but it's fascinating. And just from a filmmaking point of view, having watched a lot of the long-form documentaries, trying to get through the 15 ones on the short list, and then watching them, the short documentaries, 40 Minutes and Under, these films are forced to be tight. So this is a really good legal lesson, history lesson, all in 40 minutes. It's on Amazon Prime. So I'm recommending this film as a good lesson in death penalty cases. And it's so, it's so uh, timely now, so relevant now, particularly because when we're talking about uh, what you, you mentioned earlier on in the show, the, the number of people have been put to death since the death penalty uh, came back. Over it's almost 1,600 people have been killed in the last 30, 40 years. Right. And one was executed yes, yesterday, Amber McLaughlin, in Missouri, notwithstanding that the death penalty does appear to be dying a slow death in the United States, but in those places where prosecutors really want someone to die, they are still succeeding. Yeah. Let's take a break. We'll come back with we'll promise. We're going to do some films that are indeed less depressing. Well, it's fun, fun, actually. We have a fun film coming up. I promise you a fun film. Right after this. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. To play this game, you've got to be as sharp as a blade, as quick as a one-timer, as tough as plexiglass. Oh, and having a solid dental plan, that's probably a good idea, too. Hit the ice all season long, right here on the UMass Sports Network. 1015, 1400, and 1240 WHMP. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. But I don't see wine here, Ringo. What do you got? Well, who am I? You're the spirit guy. Uh-oh. So you're taking me down the road of spirit. So our next whiskey is from High Coast. It's called Have, H-A-V, which means sea, like the ocean. Where's High Coast? Sweden. What? It's a Swedish whiskey. Have. And this one was in uh, the top whiskeys of the year list. It was number six. Wow. You're right? Swedish whiskey. I mean, I know they have really good food there because of the Swedish chef. Yeah. Naturally. Bork, bork. You have to assemble this whiskey all by yourself without any instructions. That's the <laughs> thing about it. They trap you in this big box and then they give you like just diagrams of what you're supposed to do with this. Yeah, just pictures of grains. It's whiskey from Sweden, from High Coast. And how much is this one? You can have this one for $57.99. I like what you did there see and that's a good price too find your favorite whiskey and your next favorite whiskey at state street hello this is linda DeGillis, vice president and trust officer at greenfield savings bank wealth management and trust services many of our customers are surviving spouses who have found themselves suddenly in charge of their household's financial savings and investments which had previously been handled exclusively by their late spouse a number of our female customers have told us that one of the reasons they moved their accounts to GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services was because they felt patronized or talked down to by their spouse's financial advisor. At GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services, our team of professionals will always treat you with respect and compassion. If you are looking for portfolio management, estate settlement services, or trust services, please call us, Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services at 413 775 8335. That's 413-775-8335. Or stop into any GSB office or contact us online through the wealth management section at greenfieldsavings.com. Thank you. The Northampton Community Music Center provides quality, accessible music education to more than a thousand members of the greater Northampton community. Hi, this is Jason Trotta, executive director of the Northampton Community Music Center. Our scholarship fund helps those with limited means access affordable music instruction and has never turned away a qualifying applicant in its 33 years of existence. To find out how you can help, please visit our website at ncmc.net. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. 
This is Cool Films with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. We have been reviewing films. Larry has been reviewing films more accurately for us for a number of weeks, maybe months now, uh, leading up to the Oscars, where he is one of the voting members of the Academy. And we're going to continue these segments through the Oscars because we appreciate your positive feedback about the segment. And Larry Hott. Larry, what do you have for us now? This is a fun film. When I saw the subject matter of this film, I thought uh, it'll be lively and interesting because it's about basketball, championship games. Uh, I'm not really into basketball, but I'll, I'll watch it because some of these documentary films, you know, they can be a little slow. Even though I make documentary films, you know, fly on the wall ones, you got to sit through them. So I turn on 38 at the Garden, and this thing just rips. It just moves so quickly that by the time it was over, I, I actually called my girlfriend into the room and said, you got to watch this with me again. <laughs> <laughs> Can you explain such, the title for us? 38 at the Garden. Well, it's the 38 points that Jeremy Lin scores against Kobe Bryant and others in the Lakers in one of the first games in his professional career. So let's go back in time a little bit. It's February 10th, 2012. There's a filmmaker, Frank Chi. He's an Asian man. He wants to go from D.C. to New York to see the Knicks play the Lakers. He's a big fan. Can't get a ticket. So he goes to a bar, a karaoke bar, in Koreatown, which is near Madison Square Garden, and he watches the game on television. And there he watches this Chinese-American kid named Jeremy Lin, a fairly recent graduate of Harvard, where he had a stellar basketball career, score 38 points. I don't know if it was his first game or it was one of his first games, and wins the game against the Lakers. And Kobe Bryant is stunned. They're all stunned. Right. And so that's the background to the story. We're going to hear a clip in a second, but it's what the film is really about. It's not Jeremy Lin and his 38 points. It's about something else altogether, and we'll hear that in the clip. While I'm watching this live, I'm like, this cannot be happening. This cannot be happening. I think it just blew all of our minds that we would see someone that looked like my cousin dominate on an NBA court. It's the most impossible thing I think I have ever witnessed in my life. When most Americans think about Asians, they think about dry cleaners, they think about IT guy. Small, passive, diminutive, unathletic. The stereotyping, the derision are so rampant. You don't think no Asian kid that's this size is gonna be dunking. This is who I am, this is what I'm capable of. All you guys need to do is watch and see. This kid came out of nowhere and started balling like for real. It wasn't just Asian people talking about it. Everybody was talking about it. The Lakers came in with the idea that we're going to end this fairy tale. We're going to end it tonight. But Jeremy just kept making shots. He gave all y'all what y'all wanted to see. Is this the other plot of Space Jam? Like, whose superpowers did Jeremy Lin steal? Yo, this dude scored 38 points! At the Garden, at the Mecca. The biggest thing that Sandy brought was... You could hear the excitement in their voices, those people being interviewed. But they're really not talking about Jeremy Lin's basketball prowess. They're talking Although about... Although he did play in the NBA for some years. Seven years, yeah, uh, and, did, and did well. And he's, of course, the main interview in the film. He's, he's quite young, <laughs> uh, very articulate, uh, tall. <laughs> Actually, he's not that tall. He's 6'3", which is part of the story. You know, that's not tall in the NBA. But the people who are interviewed are who are comedians and sportscasters, all Asian, are just so enthusiastic about the idea that this guy is known for his sports skills and not for his brain. <laughs> and that is a real contradiction because all of them, to a person in this film, have been pushed by their parents to succeed mostly in science and medicine, engineering, right, STEM. And the woman that you hear at the beginning is a comedian. And then there's the newscaster, right? And they're, they're, not, they're not Chinese, for the most part. They're, they, they're from India, they're from Pakistan, they're from Korea. And 
you know, Americans frequently, white Americans frequently make a mistake of lumping everybody together from ethnic groups. You know, all the Asians are the same. Of course, they're completely, completely different, have completely langu different languages and customs and you know, live in different areas of the country. But here they all come together over Jeremy Lin, right? Because Was he a hero? Or has he been? He's, yes, he's, he's a, a young man. He's a thirty-four yes, but, years yes, old. Yes, and, and 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 part of the revelation in this film is what a hero he has been to the Asian community, and the, it's the Pan Asian community, right? It's not just Chinese um, Americans. Uh, the hostility towards Asians in the United States has been noticed, particularly during the pandemic. Uh, a rise in hate crimes. Rise in hate, and, and in fact, in this film, there's a map showing particularly in New York, how much, how many crimes there have been, how many, how much violence there have been against people of Asian ancestry. And I have family in New York who are, who are Korean um, who have told me how scared they are sometimes, scared for the, not only for themselves, but for their elderly parents. Uh, so watching, watching this film, which is ostensibly about a sports hero, is actually, actually about a lot more. I would like to know before we run out of time here, Larry, you mentioned uh, the, this film, 38 at the Garden, your previous review was of American Justice on Trial. You had said these are short films under 40 minutes right? Uh, for a specific documentary category for the Oscars. Where can we find these films? Well, the uh, 38 at the Garden is an HBO film. Uh, the uh, which means it was made specifically was, for HBO. Well, they paid for it. You know, it, it's really you have to go deep into the credits to see whether the film was in production beforehand, and then they picked it up. Um, but once they buy it, then it goes on to their site. You know, there's huge competition on these sites, so you'll hear an advertisement only on Showtime, for, for example. Uh, eventually, all of them become available for three ninety nine or so. Uh, the previous one we talked about, the Huey Newton film, is on Amazon Prime. And there's actually a book of the same title, so it leads me to believe that that was how the film got made, um, and which is also on, on Amazon. I don't work for Amazon, but I'm telling you that you can find those things there. And th these films may start as independent productions, and then the big companies come and buy them up when they hear about them? Or so they... the, way, the way it works is this. A filmmaker has an idea and tries to figure out how to get it funded. Occasionally, an executive at Amazon or Netflix will say, I would like to have a film made, and they'll find a filmmaker to do it. Almost none of these, including PBS, they don't have anybody in-house anymore. That's gone. That's been gone for a long time. So it's always independence, and sometimes it's a contract and a commission, and sometimes they buy the film and license it. Sometimes they contribute the money. These things have a thousand ways of getting made, and I've done every one of them. And we're going to leave it there. This has been Cool Films with Florence-based Emmy Award-winning filmmaker Larry Hott. Bye-bye. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Sunday mornings on WHMP means polka, polka carousel. Every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, TZ brings his award-winning polka carousel to the airwaves of the valley, playing the polka classics and the latest polka hits. There are polka hits? Brought to you by Saluzniak Funeral Home, Northampton's funeral home for over 110 years and four generations of unparalleled, thoughtful memorial care. It's Polka Carousel every Sunday morning from 8 till noon, WHMP. The Food Bank of Western Massachusetts provides healthy food to families and individuals facing hunger in our region. And right now, with food insecurity the highest it's been in recent years, the Food Bank is distributing more emergency food than ever. Learn more about the Food Bank or get support for yourself and your family. Go to foodbankwma.org or call 413-247-9738. The Food Bank of Western Mass, Live committed local, to making sure our neighbors have enough to eat. Northampton and the Valley since 1950. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, A Northampton Radio Group Station.